Our second reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 15. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord... She said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This morning we thought about uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy trekking up through Turkey and looking for opportunities to preach the gospel and finding everywhere they went the door was closed against them until eventually they came to Troas where Paul had this vision of a man from Macedonia appearing to him and saying, come over here. And help us. As a result of which they concluded that God was calling them to cross the straits and go into Europe and preach the gospel there. And when they got there, they found the person waiting for them was not a man, but a woman. Not that she knew it yet at that point. Because for Lydia, when they first met her, it was just another Sabbath. A day of rest at the end of a hard week's work dealing in purple cloth. She made enough money to make ends meet and run her own household, running her own business, running her own home, that made her immeasurably better off than the majority of people who lived in Philippi. And every Sabbath, she would go down by the river to join other women where they would chat and spend some time in prayer. And while she wasn't Jewish herself, Lydia was attractive to Judaism. The Jewish view of God seemed to make the most sense to her. Philippi had a temple dedicated to the emperor, which was immensely popular with most people because Philippi was a Roman colony and proud of it. But she couldn't quite get her head around the idea that the emperor was the son of a god and in some sense divine. The other major temple was an Egyptian one because Philippi was located on a major trading route and the one dedicated to Egyptian gods had plenty of visitors as well. But she couldn't quite relate to the Egyptian gods, the god of the sun, Serapis. His winged consort Isis, or Hippocrates, the, the silent little boy with a finger to his lips. But the Jewish God was a God without an image. The Jewish God was the creator of heaven and earth. That made more sense to her. And she was also attracted to the Jewish way of life, their code of conduct, the way in which they tended to keep themselves to themselves a bit. There was something definitely distinctive about them. They were a people apart. And they seemed to have got the truth about God right, as far as she could tell. Not that there was a synagogue in Philippi, which was a shame, because there was one in the Chaldean quarter in her hometown, Thyatira. But here in Philippi, there were just a few women. Jewish tradition said that when ten people sit together and occupy themselves with studying the law, the divine glory abides among them, 
as it is said, God stands in the congregation of his people. Unfortunately, in practice, ten people tended to mean ten men. And even though they knew of some places where wealthy women had been honoured with the title ruler of the synagogue because of their generous financial support, that wasn't the case in Philippi. So she and the other women gathered week by week by the river, the traditional place of prayer. This week was a bit different though. There were four visitors to the town who came and joined them. They'd been looking for a synagogue and not found one, and they guessed that the river would be the best place to look for people who come to worship God. And they introduced themselves. There was Luke, a doctor, who hadn't come all that far actually, just across the straits back in Troas over in Asia Minor. There was Timothy, who was by far the youngest. He said he came from Lystra in southern Turkey. There was Silas, whose home was in Jerusalem. And there was one called Paul, who said he came from Tarsus. And in the course of conversation, as you do, the, the lady said, well, what, what brings you here? What brings you to Philippi? And it was Paul who responded. And Lydia was spellbound as she listened to his story. How he was, by upbringing, a Pharisee. One of the strictest orders, an ardent defender of the Jewish law. How he had actively opposed the followers of someone called Jesus of Nazareth, who had been crucified as a rebel in Jerusalem. After his death, Jesus' followers had gone around claiming that God had raised him from the dead and declared him to be the Messiah, the son of David. They were denouncing the temple authorities for their part in his execution. As a Pharisee, Paul had seen any attack on the temple and the high priesthood as an attack on God himself. He considered them to be misguided, even dangerous. One of them had been stoned to death of blasphemy, and at the time, Paul had thought that such a punishment was precisely what the man deserved. The trouble was that clamping down on this movement in Jerusalem meant that the followers of Jesus just scattered elsewhere. And Paul had been on his way to investigate the ports that they'd set up in another base of operations in Damascus. And on his way, Jesus had appeared to him in person. In a blinding flash of what could only be described as divine glory. Telling Paul to go on into Damascus. And there he would be told what he should do next. After three days he had been visited by a man called Ananias. Paul had spent that time fasting and praying. <coughs> when Ananias came he prayed for him. Laid his hands on him and asked him, Asked God to restore his sight because he hadn't been able to see since that vision of Jesus. And Paul was then baptized in the name of Jesus and declared his faith in him as Lord and Messiah. And Paul knew that he was being called to go and tell other people that Jesus was the Christ, specifically being called to go to people who weren't Jews, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to the true and living God. To tell them that Jesus had died for their sins. So that they could be put right with God. And that anyone who believed in Jesus and called on his name would receive the Holy Spirit. God himself. Making them a new creation inside. God himself. Making their hearts his temple. God including them within his holy people and giving them the gift of salvation and eternal life. As Paul recounted 
his experience. Lydia listened. And as she did so, God opened her heart. And she knew. She knew that she was hearing the truth about the God she'd been trying to find for so long. That this God had made himself known to her by sending his son into the world and by sending his people to Philippi to share the good news of Jesus with her. She believed what Paul was saying and had this inescapable sense that God was speaking to her. That God wanted to take charge of her life. This amazing news that God had sent his son into the world to bring the forgiveness of sins. That by believing in him, she could have eternal life. That God wanted to make her heart his temple. And that God in some sense had singled her out by directing the paths of these men to Philippi. Because Paul had talked about that vision of the man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And here they were. Who were they here to help? It was her. It was real to her. It was personal to her. It was a life-changing moment for her. She wholeheartedly put her trust in Jesus as Saviour, accepted him as her Lord, and went down into the river to be baptised, because that's what it was there for. And she wasn't the only one. Other members of her household followed suit. And after she'd been baptised, she asked Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, where are you staying? And when she heard what digs they had, she absolutely insisted that they should come and stay with her. Of course you must come, she said. Unless you think there's something wrong with my faith. And when they laughed and said, well, no, of course not. She insisted. And she led the way back to her home. And at sundown prepared an evening meal for them all. Well, who knows exactly how it happened. Luke just gives us the, the bare bones of a, of a brief narrative. But we do know it was a momentous day for Lydia. I fully admit I've used a bit of imagination and poetic license and drawn stuff all over the place in describing the events of that day. Yet four things are clear. Four things that Lydia did. Firstly, she listened. She listened to Paul. And as she listened, God opened her heart. And as that happened, the second thing was she believed. The third thing, she was baptised. The fourth thing, she opened her home. She offered these strangers hospitality and made them welcome because they weren't strangers anymore. They were her brothers in Christ. They were part of her family and she wanted to treat them as such. Four things, listening, believing, being baptised, opening her home. Most people, you know, become Christians as a result of something they hear. Sometimes it happens differently. Someone might become a Christian as a direct result of reading the Bible or another Christian book. It can happen because they've seen a film or even having a dream or a vision. But mainly, it's the result of a conversation, like Lydia had with Paul down by the river. Perhaps someone sharing their testimony. Perhaps even a sermon like this one. When I'm preaching, I can only speak the words that I feel God has given me to say. 
And while, like every preacher, I guess I try and be persuasive when I present the gospel or, or preach a sermon, I do give a wide berth to anything that could be construed as an attempt to manipulate people into making some kind of response. Because when people become Christians, I don't want that to be a result of my skill as a preacher or my rhetorical ability or the, the persuasion that I use or the techniques that I use. If it's genuine, it's got to be a genuine work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts. Convicting them of the truth of the gospel. Conveying the truth of God's word to them, saying, this is God speaking to you. So it's not planning on my part, it's not manipulation on my part, it's not neuro-linguistic programming or any other kind of technique, because it's God who opens people's hearts to his message. And when someone, sometimes happens, someone comes to me after the service and says, you were speaking directly to me this morning, I can always answer with perfect honesty, well I didn't prepare that sermon specifically with you in mind. Because I don't. I never sit this one would give this answer. This would give that. <laughs> it's God who takes what I say, or what Jack says, or what anybody says, and applies it to people. And often you think, I don't remember saying that at all. But God translates it and applies it and makes it real. So in any effective sermon, there are always four participants. There is the preacher who speaks the words that God has given to him or her to speak. There are those who listen. And, and you're a very attentive congregation here this evening, which is brilliant. If you're listening by podcast, you wouldn't be bothering unless you're an attentive listener, I guess, unless you've gone to sleep already. There's the third participant, who is God, who opens people's hearts to pay attention to what is said. And the fourth, the fourth has to be those who are praying for that to happen. Praying that people will listen. Pray that God will open people's hearts. Pray that the preacher will have heard what God wants to say in the course of preparation and be able to communicate it when the time comes. Without those people praying, the likelihood of people responding and hearing God speaking to them is, is drastically diminished. So do be people of prayer. prayer. Pray for me, pray for the message, pray for God to work, pray for all those who hear. So Lydia listened, God opened her heart, and as a result, she believed. Has God opened your heart to believe the good news of Jesus? Because if he hasn't done so yet, and you would like to believe, ask him. Ask him to open your heart and give you the gift of faith. Because becoming Christian is primarily all about faith. The first Christians were called believers, and it's something very personal. It's not just believing stuff about Jesus, that there was a man called Jesus, and he was put to death on the cross, and, and people said he rose again from the dead, and he's been worshipped for 2,000 years by Christians. It's, it's about what that means to me. <coughs> Jesus came to make God known to me. But when he died on the cross, it was my sin that he took. So that I could be forgiven. Whatever lies in the past could be dealt with. Rising again from the dead to be Lord of my life and direct who I am and how I should be in the future and to give me the gift of eternal life. Faith is entrusting who I am, my future, my eternal destiny 
and say, Jesus, I trust you for that. I trust you to forgive my past. I trust you to put me right with God. I trust you to make the most of my life. I trust you that I will rise again and live with you after I have died. It's a step of faith, of trust and commitment that can't leave you unchanged. It's not an intellectual thing, it's a heart thing as well. It's a whole person thing. Committing our lives to Jesus and acknowledging his claim on us, who we are, that we live all our lives for him. And if you've taken that step, if you've listened and God has opened your heart so that you've believed, the logical step after that, really, is to get baptised as Lydia did. And she did it then and there, by the river. Baptism is where the faith that we have in our hearts comes out into the open and we publicly declare that Jesus is Lord. When someone becomes a Christian, you read through Acts, and, and this is the pattern that sometimes happens in different orders, and not all these three things are mentioned every time, but the person believes, God gives the Holy Spirit, and someone in the church baptises them. Those three things belong together. Baptism is a profoundly symbolic act, and a powerfully symbolic act as well. The water represents the way in which our faith makes us clean on the inside. Since John baptised, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People who have been baptised as a sign say, I know I've done stuff that's wrong. I want that cleansed out of my life, and I trust God for forgiveness and his help to live my life a different way. Going under the water and coming up out of the water represents dying to our past and being raised to a new life with Christ. That's why I'm a Baptist minister rather than an Anglican or a Methodist. I'm not scoring denominational points here. But the symbolism of actually dying, being buried and rising again seems to be logically to be accurately symbolised by total immersion. And, as well, the time to do that is when you make your own personal decision to follow and accept Christ as Lord. And as well, total immersion implies total commitment. All of me, every part of me, given to Christ. So he is based on who I am and how I live and what I do. Being baptised in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit indicates that we are now part of God's family and under new management. And as when Jesus was baptised, God sent the Holy Spirit and Jesus heard God saying, You are my Son, I'm really pleased with you. God says the same in any one of us as well. It's the same step of faith and commitment. The Holy Spirit in our hearts witnesses that we are God's children and pours out God's love into us. And it's a way of standing up and being counted and making a commitment before God in the presence of everyone who's there. Because it's a public declaration saying, Jesus is my Lord. So as people say to me sometimes, as they sometimes do, can't I just do it at home, quietly in the bath, when no one else is there? A, you don't fit, unless you've got an exceptionally large bath. But B, it is a public thing. It is saying to everybody, I'm following Jesus now. And while you can be a Christian without being baptised, being baptised is really not an optional extra. It's just a matter of putting the right label on the tin and saying, now I belong to Jesus. And as Paul says in the letter to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. Because
is that faith in the heart comes out of the open with the confession that we make. I did bring tonight five copies of the book that believe in be baptised. They are by the welcome desk. If you want to take one home and read it unobtrusively, you are welcome to do so. If God might be speaking to you about that. Listening, believing, being baptised. And then, then it's a matter of discovering what practical way you can serve God. For Lydia, it was easy. She opened her home to four fellow Christians who needed somewhere to stay. It was an act of generosity, kindness, and service. Faith needs to be expressed. In baptism, it needs to be expressed in acts of charity and deeds of service. And if you're listening to this and you can see this, yes, I'm, I've believed, yes, I'm, I'm listening to what he's saying, yes, I've been baptised, what are you doing to serve God? How is all that finding expression in practical acts of service and commitment and generosity and love and kindness to other people? It's wonderful that you're listening, but how is what you're hearing being worked out in what you are doing? And if you're not sure what you could do to serve God yourself, there are three or four things to look out for. How can I do something that will serve someone else? in the name of Jesus, and that will benefit them in a way that is generous and kind and loving. What can I do that is generous? What can I do that is kind? What can I do that is loving? How can I serve this person in the name of Christ? How can I be Christ to this person? For Lydia, it was opening a home to people she'd met just that day. For you, it will be something different. For the person sitting next to you, it will be something different again. Because we all have different gifts and resources at our disposal. But in each of our lives, God wants to work out his calling in practical deeds of love and generosity and service so that we make a difference in Jesus' name to the people that we meet and the world in which we live. So, that's the end of the sermon. Thank you for listening. I hope that God has opened your heart so that you believe what's been said and maybe applied an aspect of it directly to you. And if getting baptised is on your agenda, have a word with me or Jack or another Christian you know or trust. But this week, and this applies to us all, surely, what can we do for somebody else this week that expresses our faith in a way that is generous, kind and loving? I've done my bit, I've preached the sermon. If God's done his bit as well, and opened your heart to what's been said, what are you going to do next?